When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome to Buckeye Talk. It is the Big Wednesday podcast. I am Nathan Baird from Cleveland.com. He is Stephen Means. I'm pointing. I'm pointing at my closet. He's not standing in the closet. He's at his uh, home, his apartment on uh, up in uh, well, wherever you live. We don't have to give people that information. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not gonna be like Doug. We're not putting my information. Out there, no. <laughs> the Greater Columbus area, yeah. and um, we're here to talk some Ohio State football as we do every week, five days a week now. But this is kind of the flagship property of the Buckeye Talk Enterprise, and we're so glad you're back with us. For those of you who are our tech subscribers. Thank you so much. You definitely helped me, helped us out this week with some great topics, some great responses to the things we're going to be talking about. We have been breaking down Ohio State football's 2020 schedule on a kind of week-by-week basis, and we took last week off because that's when the the bye week would have occurred. So we've already talked about uh, uh, Bowling Green and Oregon and Buffalo (laughs) and Rutgers, and then we had the gap, and then now we're back into Big Ten play, and this week we are talking – about Iowa, and we are going to. Uh, I have an interview with Chad Lysico from the Des Moines Register, who gives us some good insight into where the Hawkeyes are, what they did this off season, or, or well, what they didn't do. I guess nobody really did much this off season, but what what their off season um, was about. They had some some um, attrition, guys left, guys came in. What that's going to mean, and and kind of just some some good insight on some good perspective on what it is to be a program like Iowa relative to a program like Ohio state and, and how they kind of look at things differently, how Iowa develops its players when it doesn't recruit at the same level as Ohio state, et cetera. So that'll be in the second half of the podcast. We're going to get to that interview with him. And then we're also going to talk about the 2017 Iowa game, kind of the lingering effects of that for Ohio state. Uh, something I talked to Chad about and what it means for Iowa's fan base and its program and I was curious just to get some visceral reactions from Ohio State fans about the 2017 game, but also has your perspective on that changed in the last three years? Do you look at that game differently than just the shock of the moment? And there were some really great answers there. So I appreciate those of you. If you haven't signed up yet for the subtext subscription, Buckeye Talk, uh, look at the links that we have out there in our Twitter feeds and other places, or just text 614-350-3315. You can sign up straight through the text. 
just to get a couple of things out of the way, obviously there is some serious stuff going on in the world right now. It has sort of touched Ohio State football in a, in a way um, with, with all of the, the protests that are going on right now, a lot of unrest out there in the, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. We are not going to go in depth on that subject, at least today. Um, I think a lot of you come here because not expecting us to ignore those issues, but also sometimes because with everything that's going on in the world right now, this is, it can be kind of a, a, a refuge for you. So uh, there was an incident, uh, an Ohio State player, CJ Saunders, was arrested for being out past curfew. And honestly, that's about the extent of what I know about that situation. And it may be just as simple as that. Uh, we don't know that he was out protesting based on what uh, has been reported in the police report. 11 Warriors was the first reported. And it may have been a situation where he was just uh, out when he shouldn't have been. He may have been out protesting and kind of, you know, was, was willing to get arrested for in a kind of a civil disobedience kind of way. I don't know. Um, but until and, and also the Ohio State players, he was one of the Ohio State players who put together a video along with Ryan Day where they sort of read this sort of unified statement against racism. And that's the extent to which it has touched the program, at least visibly so far. You're seeing a lot of social media response from a lot of those guys, you know, sort of standing up and saying, giving their opinion about this is not a new problem and um, that they're, they're kind of ready for some change. And, and um, it's certainly a sentiment that I can support. Um, like I said, we're not going to get too deep on this, but Stephen, I want to give you a chance if there's anything you want to say, because obviously for those of you who haven't seen our videos, uh, <laughs> Stephen and I come from different backgrounds and maybe have a different perspective on this. So um, if, if I guess I'm just curious how you're seeing this through the lens of how athletes are responding to this um, and what you see from this going forward in the, in the short term. I mean, with anything, the athletes are using their platform to speak about things they believe in. And obviously Ryan Day and the entire Ohio State football program and the school itself has backed them in that. Um, and you see a lot of that with players today who have, you know, supported CJ Saunders and you know, his arrest. You saw it with, even with the basketball program with Towns, who was detained last Friday. He wasn't arrested. He was just detained and eventually let go and he was let he went home that night and everything was fine. You're, you're seeing what, what this boils down to is you're seeing student athletes use their platforms to speak on the things they believe in and the school in their pro in their respective programs are backing or backing them on it. The, the Seth Towns incident, I believe, and I, I hesitate to even call it an incident, but that, that, that instance, I believe a was before they had instituted a curfew, but even if it wasn't, it was. I believe it was, I believe it was B earlier in the night. Possibly no, it was, no it, it was it was about it had there was no curfew at that point yeah the curfew okay. I think came in place Sunday but it was no it was pretty late in the night but yeah okay. had nothing, that was be, that was pre-curfew but you are seeing I think Ohio State coaches whether it was the statement that Chris Holtman put out kind of very early in this process I thought um kind of standing up for a lot of these issues and and Ryan Day didn't write out as, as long of a, a piece, but like I said, he was in that video. Um, I think he's been right there along with his players. Uh, you're seeing that from a lot of, of programs that the coaches are, and a lot of times it's white coaches. It's, it's guys about my age or a little older, and um, most of them aren't as white as me. It's hard to be as white as me, but, but they're pretty white. And they're, they're standing up alongside their very diverse rosters and um, trying to be agents of, of change or, or agents of, of you know, kind of in this strive for justice. So um, we'll keep monitoring that and we'll keep reporting on it as it affects Ohio State football. But like we said, I don't, I don't, we don't want to go into that too long today because we know you guys out there listening are 
still very interested in, in talking Ohio State football and, and going into in depth in, in Ohio State football as we always do. So with that, I'm going to awkwardly transition to some Ohio State football talk. Sort of one of the main themes as we have looked ahead to 2020 is this offense that is potentially brilliant, like potentially could really be explosive this season. You know, we have some questions about the running game still, but with Justin Fields, with this offensive line, with all the receiving talent they have, you think that there's something pretty special that could happen offensively against a defense where there are more questions. They lost, you know, two top five NFL draft picks at, um, there were top three NFL draft picks at, uh, on the defense. They lost other, you know, another first rounder, a third rounder. I mean, a lot of significant talent exited this defense and it's going to be, those spots are going to be filled by guys who just haven't proven themselves at the big 10 level yet. So we got a question from one of our texters. And as always, I'm never, ever, ever ready to read the exact question. So I'm going to do the lame pause. Bear with me for a moment. I'll just keep talking like I have some say. Here it is. This was a question from the 937. What would be more valuable to this year's team in its effort to win a national championship? One, the offense lives up to its expected potential. Or two, the defense is a little better than most think they will be. So basically, do you think the odds of winning a national championship go up or down if the offense is not quite as good as their potential, if it means the defense is better than expected? That was from Jared D in the 937. And again, thanks to everyone who sends us questions. Sometimes. Sometimes we use them in the rapid fire, but sometimes they become like big segments. And I thought that was a good one to make a big segment today. So I, I, I tried to phrase the question basically exactly that way. But is it more important for Ohio State's national championship aspirations for the offense to live up to its potential? So sort of meet expectations, which are high. Or is it more important that the defense exceeds its expectations, which right now are if not low, at least it's not necessarily people expecting them to be bad. It's just that there is less certainty in how good they could be. So I think people understand what we're saying when we ask that question. So Stephen, I, as you considered that response, what was your answer? I went with the offense needs to be the best version of itself over the defense. And here's part of the reason for why. I went back and looked at that 2014-15 season when they won a national championship. Ohio State ranked fifth in the country in scoring at 44.8 points per game. So they scored 45 points a game. While their defense gave up 22 points per game and ranked 26 in the country. So that's a – I mean, when you're talking power five defenses, it's pretty middle of the road. It's not a great defense. That's a pretty – that's a pretty darn good offense right there. It's part of the reason why they ended up winning a national championship. But here's the deal. Justin Fields is going to be a Heisman finalist and is going to be competing with Trevor Lawrence to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. We know that. He's one of the two best quarterbacks in the country. We know they have four top 100 receivers along with Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave in their receiving court. Obviously, there's questions within the running back room of what that's going to look like, but they have one of the best offensive lines in the country. Josh Myers and Wyatt Davis are probably going to be All-Americans. Thayer Mumford's a third-year starter, and the, the other two guys are five-star recruits, regardless of who they are. Obviously, Harry Miller's probably the left guard, and then between Paris Johnson and Nicholas Petit-Frere, no matter who starts, that's a five-star guy, top 10 guy in the country. So if that offense isn't one of the five best offenses in the country, there's a problem there. That doesn't make sense when you look at it on paper. While on the defensive side, yes, they were ridiculously good last year because they had Jeff Okuda and Chase Young, who were – you know, the number two and number three picks in the draft, respectively. 
And, you know, they had other – they had fifth-year seniors on the defensive line who were great as well. But I don't necessarily think you need that level of a defense every single year to win a national championship. It's great because it provides the type of balance you need, but you can't bank on that every year. But what you can bank on is having one of the best quarterbacks in the country, an offensive mind like Ryan Day, who is always fitting his offense to whoever his quarterback is, the talent and weapons that are around Justin Fields. While on defense – Yes, Kerry Combs has never been a defensive coordinator, but I think we can all agree that that floor for what the base level is going to look like is pretty high, right? We can all agree on that. Well, I think the floor for the offense is higher, and the ceiling for it I don't even think exists for the offense. So I would take my chances of defense with some guys with a high ceiling and – a defensive coordinator who's got a high floor, maybe, you know, being the baseline of whatever they're going to be and combining that with one of the three best offenses in the country and that winning a national championship than vice versa. Last year, the offense was so great because the defense was really good. This year, that's got to be flipped. The offense, the defense is going to be good because the offense is so great. So a lot of people agreed with you. Um, here's a, here's a vote from the five, one, three, uh, the offense living up to its potential. It's hard to win games if you can't score. And with Kerry Combs back, I don't fear another 2018 defensive debacle. And I think that's an important way to, to think about this too. I, I don't know that if you say the defense not exceeding its potential means that it falls off a cliff. So I guess as I was coming up with my answer, I looked at what are the, the, the possible outcomes you could have. Okay. One both the offense and the defense just stink. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that this is a potential outcome for Ohio State. It's a potential outcome you'd think of for any team going into the season. So offense and defense both stink. Well, that's not very likely. This offense, um, it, it, even if something were to happen to Justin Fields, I think this offense is going to put up points. It's going to be able to move the ball. It's not going to be a, an offense that's stuck in the mud, regardless of who is quarterbacking it this year. Um, and there's just too much other good going for it with this offensive line, with these receivers. There's other talent there. They're going to be able to move the ball against the majority of their schedule regardless. And the defense also, I don't think even if it, even if the guys that they're bringing in don't immediately jump to the front as like frontline big 10 players, I don't see them just being an abomination. So I took that option off the table. Uh, another option, both the offense and the defense are phenomenal. Um, as you say, I think that ceiling is there for the offense. I, I struggle to see that ceiling for the defense. I don't see this defense even getting to last year's level just because that team was so loaded with talent on the defensive side. Um, yes, there are some of those guys back. You get the whole linebacker group back. You've got Sean Wade back. You've got some other guys who are stepping into roles who seem like they're kind of up and coming to fill behind the guys who left but you still expect some regression. It's hard to see them coming out and being to, to say that to say phenomenal. I mean, you'd have to be at 2019 level or above. That seems unlikely. So I took that option off the table. So that leaves you with the offense is great and the defense struggles or the offense struggles and the defense is great. Or, or even that the offense is just, is just okay. And the defense is great. And I still, when I, at the end of the day, I, I think I agree that this offense the floor is so high on this offense, but I, I disagree that the floor is so high that it can win with any defense. I guess that's what my answer came down to. And I ultimately went with it's the defense that has to exceed expectations in order for Ohio state to win a national championship. The other half of that being though, that I, right now the defense's expectations are low enough that I don't know that you have, they still don't have to be great in order to exceed expectations. Right? Yeah. That's, that's fair. I just think that 
in a world where, especially because Ohio State's in the Big Ten, outside of maybe that Oregon game, I don't know if there's a single game Ohio State schedule where regular season schedule, obviously you get to the playoff and it's a whole different monster, but in the regular season outside of Oregon, but even then without really knowing who their quarterback is yet, you even would put them maybe as an asterisk for a team that have to do this for. But I don't know if there's one team where Ohio State can't come in there with the mindset of we can just outscore them and win this game. We don't necessarily have to stop them to win the game. I would say, here's, I guess, my pushback on this. If, if A, if the defense does not exceed expectations, if it's just sort of fine, A, that makes them more susceptible to an upset or a loss during the season, whether that's at Penn State or at Oregon or some other game we're not expecting to be as close. And B, it puts them in a worse position to then go into the playoff and compete against the other very best teams in the country. Both of those, I think, I feel like the, it, there's a there's a greater chance that the defense holds them back from national championship level than there is the offense holds them back from national championship level because the only way that the offense would probably – the only way that that would probably be true of the offense is if they're just not – outscoring enough to make up for the defense not stopping the other team right yeah but you have to the name of the game is still score points so you can a defense can get all the stops at once but if that's let's just take last year for example Ohio State could have got all those stops at one and two Chase could have went out there and got every sack in the world got every strip sack you could think of and the secondary can get interception after interception but if Ohio State's not going out there and putting the points on the board then what what happened? Clemson happens where you continue to get into the red zone, but you don't score seven points. You end up with a field goal, and you do that time and time again. And yes, some other things happen, but one of the primary things that happened was the offense wasn't taking advantage of scoring opportunities, and they were ending with field goals, and it allowed Clemson to get back into the game. So I didn't ask you this ahead of time, so this may be a tough question to answer off the top of your head if you haven't done any. But as you look at the, so what would you, what numerical expectations should you put on this defense? Like, what would they – where would they need to hold teams? What would they need to, to do? Like, what, when you say, what would be good enough from this defense? Just like comparing it to the last time they won a national championship, I mean, if they're giving up 18 to 20 points per game, I mean, that's not – it's not one of the best defenses in the country. But, you know, in comparison to, like, this a team who probably will average north of 40 points per game, I think if they're giving up anywhere from 18 to 22 points per game, I don't think that's a problem. So our texters voted 34 to 24 in favor of the defense having to exceed expectations being the help that Ohio State needs to win a national championship. Um, so fairly close. It's actually closer than I expected going into it. But they made some, some, some interesting arguments. From the 419, the offensive, the offensive line living up to his expectations is more important to me. This ensures at least a competent running game, taking some pressure off the field. So if that's the case, I think this offense is going to put up a lot of points. If the defense just meets expectations, we should be able to win shootouts if needed. My expectation for the defense is it will be somewhere in the middle of two years ago and last year. If it meets that expectation, I think that's good enough. Um, and a couple of people, and I, I thought I'd, I'd save these texts, and it, apparently I didn't, but a couple of people brought up the same three letters, LSU as the example of why Ohio State's defense doesn't need to be great. And again, I don't know that that was necessarily the question, but that the defense doesn't need to be great in order for Ohio State to win a national championship. So I went back and looked. Last year, LSU, where would you guess LSU ranked nationally in total defense last year? I would say probably in the, the 20s. 31st. 
31st in total defense, 343 and a half yards a game. And that's, that's after you start including the playoffs. So you're playing, you know, starting with, you know, SEC championship game and two playoff games, you're playing better offenses there. So those numbers probably came up a little bit. Um, they were 59th in passing defense, but 21st in rushing defense. So pretty good in rushing defense, um, pretty adequate in pass defense. And overall, it was the offense that, that led you to a national championship at LSU last year. However, you also had a first-round linebacker draft pick off of that team. You had Grant Delpit, the Thorpe Award winner, off of that team. You had some, some strong individual players, too. So I think that number is half deceptive. I think it, it, it says what we already know about LSU, which is that the offense won that national championship. And more to the point, Joe Burrow and the skill players, I think, won that national championship because they were just so phenomenal. But also that, um, that maybe these numbers can be a little bit deceiving, too. That I think LSU's defense, when I say when I see 31st, I don't think of that as being a bad defense. I think of that as being like still an above average defense, but just not a great defense. And, and the reason that I, I'm a little bit worried about Ohio State fans bringing up that example is, again, when we go back to the question, does the offense need to live up to expectations or does the defense need to exceed expectations? And I don't think of this as a defense right now that I'm expecting to maybe be 31st in the country at this point. Do you think that's too harsh of me, or do you think being 31st nationally is about where you expect Ohio State to be? In I think being in the 30s should be the expectation. I think – I understand that these guys weren't starters, but a lot of these guys were at least in the rotation. And a lot of those problems of 2018, when you're talking about bad defense with a high-profile, high-level high offense, was the fact that the coaching was bad. Bill Davis – was not a good linebackers coach. The scheme wasn't that was not a, a quality scheme. Players would talk about it all spring, coming into the 2019 season. They would say this scheme is this one high safety scheme is just it's a better scheme. A lot of these guys got got a chance to just be the five star, four star athletes that they were and just go out there and play. Didn't have to think nearly as much. It was simplified for them in a lot of ways where the coaches were doing a lot of thinkings and not necessarily the players. So it, there were a lot of variables into that that went into that other talent level the talent level in 2018 especially when you look at what happened in 2019 was very, very similar and a lot of those guys on this team in 2020 obviously they were you know those guys were freshmen in 2018 but it's this I think it's a similar situation in 2018 except the coaching is better you've got high talented guys with more competent to coaching and a simpler scheme where they're allowed to just go be the four or five star players that they are now, I'm not saying that's going to result in a 2019 defense because that's just ridiculous. It also included two once-in-a-generation type players on Ohio State's defense. But to say that they can be somewhere in the middle of that and be in the, thir the low 30s or even maybe the 20s, I think that should be the expectation. Here's the other thing that I think should give people pause. Uh, from the 4-4-3, I think it comes down to the offense living up to expectations. With a now more limited Clemson, and this is in the wake of the um, – Justin Ross situation. Justin Ross injury from yesterday. Thank you. Well, it didn't happen yesterday, but it was announced yesterday. We're recording this on Tuesday, announced on Monday. Um, with a now more limited Clemson and an Alabama that figures to not have an elite level QB, which remains to be seen. That was me interjecting that. <laughs> a defense that is 75 to 80% of the 2019 team is reasonable to expect and enough to win it all. Well, last year's, the, the 2019 defense had 100% of the 2019 defense and still didn't win at all. And had a pretty darn good offense on top of that, too, where we you had a running game that you could count on that you had no questions about. You had a running game 
if you were an Ohio State fan, that you believed in completely that J.K. Dobbins was going to go out and, and be a man out there and take over games sometimes if he needed to. And you had Justin Fields. And you didn't have um, the top level potential, I think, at receiver that these guys bring. But in some of these cases, it's still just potential. We haven't seen these guys do what we think they could do yet. So that's the other thing that gives me some pause is people who are putting this much ex- expectation on the offense and saying that the defense could drop off by here. We're talking about a 20%, a 20% reduction in the, in the performance of the defense and still win a national championship. When last year you had about as good of a pairing of those two sides of the ball as we've seen, and they still didn't win a national championship. Didn't even get to the national championship game. Right? Yes. But I think to some, what I've already said, if we had to remove the reps from this this blame game of why Ohio State lost in, now lost in the playoff because we we've been over that a million times. If we had to assess which side of the ball contributed more to the loss than the other side, I think it would be the offense because of what I've already said. They didn't score touchdowns in situations where they should have scored touchdowns, and that's all the offense. That's not the defense. The defense did its job throughout the first and pretty much up until. You know, Sean Wade got thrown out of the game. The defense was doing its job, and Clemson was, you know, on its on its on its heels. And Ryan Day, they were taking advantage of Clemson in every single way on both sides of the ball. And then J.K. Dobbins dropped a touchdown pass. And then he dropped another touchdown pass. And so there's two examples where if the offense was clicking on high cylinders, this isn't a, a ten to nothing game. You know, those two field goals are t- maybe are touchdowns instead of field goals. And so that's not on the defense. That's on the offensive side of the ball. So that, and that's what leads. That's what leads me to lean more. The offense needs to be everything that it needs to be over the defense because the defense can do everything it wants to do. But if the defense isn't the one scoring points, but if the offense had had to score thirty-five points to win the game instead of thirty, it would have lost. I mean, if if you take twenty percent of the performance off of the defense from last year, does Ohio State win that game? I mean, obviously, they didn't win the game anyway. But even if the offense, if the offense executes better, but you have a worse defense, then what you're asking from the offense goes up exponentially. I think so. And here's the and here's why. The two people we're talking about here when we talk about they lost their their production defensively are Chase Young and Jeff Okuda. Well, Jeff Chase Young was not you know the Chase Young we watched all season against Clemson, and Jeff Okuda had some moments, but. T. Higgins wasn't on the field anymore, so the main guy that he was matched up against was no longer really a factor for the majority of the game. So I, I, I would still lean offense just because, yes, those two were really good all year, and Jeff Okuda actually had some great moments. Let me take that back because he's the one who caused the fumble in another moment that was touchdown that was taken off the board for Ohio State. But Chase Young wasn't the, the best of Chase Young in the, Clem- in the Clemson-Ohio State game. So I think it's a better, it's a good example to use when you say, well, a good chunk of, you know, Ohio State's defense is gone, but the majority of those guys are still back. So like I said, a majority of texters agreed with me and said the defense exceeding expectations was more important than the offense meeting expectations in terms of Ohio State winning a national championship in 2020. Here were some of their responses uh, from the 585. The offense can function can function number of points wise close to last year and it will win the big 10 to win more. It's going to take a defensive effort to create pressure and maybe mask some youth in the secondary. Maybe it's just the era of Buckeye football. I grew up with, but those trestle ball era defenses produced a key turnover or defensive touchdowns with regularity. That makes me think always about defense as the cornerstone to a title. From, until, they played floor, until they played Florida and LSU. And then all of a sudden it didn't matter. They lost 41 to 14. 
yeah, That's just because, my but, to but, that. but also the but also the defense gave up forty one points. That's true. It's, it's, it, that's true. But also, you know, Ohio State literally could not score a single point. It's, I, I, that's just my response to that. To say, you know, you still have to score points, and you know, from the six one four, I think it is more important for the defense to exceed expectations. The offense, even though it doesn't live up to its even if it doesn't live up to its full potential, still has such a high floor that I believe it can and will score against any team on the schedule. Comparing 2018 and 2019, it's easy to see how much farther a team can get in the playoff era without a dominant defense over a dominant offense. As a wise man once said, defense wins championships, and I cannot believe Canes did not win the fast food bracket. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like that was like a Baba Booey that they snuck in. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was um, the real answer to the question, was Canes not winning the bracket? Uh, from the 937. So I mentioned before that teams that some of our textures brought up LSU. There was another team that they brought up on the defensive side as to why they feel like it's the defense that has to exceed expectations. And Steven, it's a team that you've mentioned before. So I'm going to read a couple of these and, and you can tell me what you think. Um, from the 937, we've seen teams win with good defense and pretty good offense. Haven't seen too many teams win championships with exceptional offense and no defense. And that's, I guess, that's important because that's where this texture is saying. If this, if we, if Ohio State doesn't exceed expectations on defense, then that means it's actually going to be a pretty poor defensive year. Um, then they say, parentheses, Oklahoma looking at you. I don't see this offense being anything less than pretty good, even on a horrible day. Defense I'm a bit worried about. We'll see. And also from the 317, my old stomping grounds. Uh, definitely the defense surpassing expectations. Case in point, Oklahoma, every single playoff appearance. As you guys said on the podcast last week, OSU's offense is extremely unlikely to match that of LSU's in 2019, which is the only offense we've seen in the playoff era good enough to win with a decent but not really solid defense. To win against the Clemson Bamas, you have to have, at the very least, have a D that can keep you in the game when your offense struggles. See Clemson D last year holding OSU to field goals until Lawrence got going late. That's the opposite side of the argument that you were making before, that it was Clemson's defense had a hand in thwarting Ohio State's offense in those scoring situations. Uh, to finish this person's thought, I think the playoff success of this team will be determined by how effective our young pass rushers can be, as well as our DBs outside of Wade and Proctor. So I put that question to you. If you're talking about a phenomenal offense and then a defense that is average, adequate, however you want to describe it, but not exceeding expectations, and I think expectations right now are at least that they'll be solid, but if you don't exceed those expectations, then, you know, maybe just kind of a regularly good Big Ten defense. If if you if, if that's what you're looking at, aren't you kind of talking about Oklahoma, and then aren't you by definition talking about the kind of team that you have pointed out doesn't win in the playoff. I mean, it might get to the playoff, but it doesn't do anything when it's there. And it actually ends up looking like being revealed as why was this team there in the first place? Okay. So that's, we, maybe we need to define what the actual expectations are for Ohio State's defense. Cause let's just use the two teams that have been used as examples here. Oklahoma's defense gave up 27 points per game, which was 64th in the country last year. LSU was 31st. I'm sorry. LSU was tied for the 31st in the country last year and gave up 21 point, 22 points per game, 21.9 points. While Oklahoma's offense was sixth in the country at 42.1 points per game, and LSU was 48.4 points, which was number one in the country. So, is the expectation, the baseline expectations, if we're saying that they need to exceed that expectation, is the baseline expectation that Ohio State is going defensive? What? defensively is going to be in the realm of Oklahoma and they're going to be in the you know 60s as far as where they rank in points per game or are they going to be like LSU where it's 
thir- number 31 at 21.9. Because if the expectation is for them to be at LSU, then they don't need – then clearly they don't need to exceed the expectation in order to win a national championship. But if it, the expectation is to be like Oklahoma, then, yeah, they do need to do that. I don't think the expectation is for the 2020 defense to be what Oklahoma was last year. I think the expectation is to be – more near what LSU was able to accomplish. And to that point, then they don't need to exceed expectations to win national championship. And that's the flaw in the question, because my expectations for Ohio State's defense and your expectations in Ohio State's defense and Art and Parma's expectations for Ohio State's defense might all be three very different things. Mm -hmm. And we're all three answering this question and saying, well, if they don't exceed expectations, there may be people who are voting for the offense because they have more confidence in the defense. And there may be people who are answering defense because they are much, much more skeptical of that defense than some of the rest of us are. Um, I think it would be, it would surprise me if they were Oklahoma bad. Um, for lack of a better term, when you're talking about being in the sixties in terms of points allowed. And again, I don't know which I was using yards allowed when I was talking about LSU before, which is is still the same, which is still the same thing. LSU was clearly, you know, in the thirties and both of those in Oklahoma is probably in the 16 yards per game. And all those metrics are really only valuable relative to the schedule that they play Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, you know, LSU being in the thirties, might be more impressive than another team being higher because they have to play an SEC schedule with better teams on it, that sort of thing. Um, same for Ohio State being as dominant as it was last year with against a, a fairly tough schedule. I think that probably resonates with people. So that does that is the tricky part of this you know, ex- exercise is that where I see Ohio State defense and where you see it and where other people might see it might be different. I guess my point is, though, I think there is across the board, there is – there is a consensus that the floor is much higher for the offense than it is for the defense. Or do you dispute that? No, that's, that's a pretty, yeah, that's a, that's easy to say. So if it, so if, if it, if the, if the defense doesn't exceed expectations, then by definition, it's, you're saying that it's not reaching that floor, which is lower than the offense is right now. Right. Right. But the offense is, you know, I think the offense's floor is probably, I don't think there's a person out there who doesn't think Ohio State's going to have one of the five best offenses in the country. So the floor for them is the top five in the country, while the ceiling is this is you're going to be better than LSU to the point that we had a two and a half hour podcast discussing Ohio State's 2020 offense in comparison to LSU's 2019 offense. So I don't even know if that's a fair comparison to make when you're talking about floors, because I don't think anybody is thinking Ohio State's defense is going to be anywhere near the you know, the 2019 defense, while with the offense, it's like the floor is you're one of the best in the country. The ceiling is you're one of the best ever. So let's, so let's, okay. So if Ohio State has an offense, uh, just just for the sake of, of this exercise, Ohio State has an offense somewhere between what it did last year and what LSU did. So better than 2019 Ohio State offense, which I don't think is a given compared to things, you know, when there's, when there's no J.K. Dobbins in the picture, I don't know that we can say for sure that'll happen. But let's say it does. Let's say they exceed 2019, but they don't get up to that stratospheric level of, of 2019 LSU that we talked about last shame. week. Shame on them. So, right. So, so that's where the offense is. And now yeah. let's say the defense is, what would you say, LSU, 22 points a game. So you're talking about yeah. a defense somewhere in the 30s, giving up 23, 24 points a game, 22, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. That team is can win a national championship. So they win a big. So they win the Big Ten. Okay, they win the Big Ten. Yeah. It, they go. Let's say they're the. Um, 
let's say they're the three seed and Clemson. I don't know who, I don't know what seeds are, but let's say, okay, would they be favored based on what you know about these other teams right now? Would they be favored against Clemson in the playoff game? I think so. Yeah. Clemson just lost Trevor Lawrence's best weapon. I think they'd be favored. I think if, but if Clemson's a defense that's giving up, that's, that's ranked in the top five and the offense isn't ranked that low. I mean, we just saw it this past. I think, I think Ohio state would be fine. I think they would compete, but I, I don't know. That and, that no, is no, the, and, and, and here's why, you know, LSU, we're, we're basically saying that Ohio state is some version of LSU. Maybe not, you know, peak LSU offensively, but there's some version of that where their offense is one of the best in the country and their defense is middle of the road. Well, while Clemson is similar to what it was last year, where it's offense and defense are both basically top 10 in the country. We saw who won that game last year. It was a team who had the, you know, ridiculous offense in the middle of the road defense. So given that, that's why I would pick Ohio State in that scenario. I, I think, I mean, I would obviously expect Ohio State to compete if they get into the playoff with, with any of those teams. I am, I do think, though, that it, it, the kind of Ohio State team that we're putting out there where, and again, maybe I just have a very different impression of what we're talking about as far as a defense not exceeding the expectations that we have for them right now. That really doesn't seem like a team that I would expect to beat Clemson. I mean, I'm, I think I'm already on the record with that this year. And I think even like what Alabama could be this year, what a team like um, Florida could be this year. I mean, I don't know how many – I'm trying to play just play it on my head. Like would Ohio State be favored against that level of team this year if the defense is still kind of lagging behind that much? Um, we talked about LSU before. It was um, Clavon Chasen was the linebacker selected mm-hmm. 20th overall by the Jaguars. Um, and I mentioned Grant Delpit. You also had Patrick Queen, a linebacker, drafted in the first round, number 28 by the Ravens before they went and got Malik Harrison also in the third round. Grant Delpit was 44th, obviously, to the Browns, for, for those of you who uh, follow uh, all of our teams. So here. that's almost a question then. As a yeah, whole... you had another second round – hold on. You had another second round pick in Christian Fulton <laughs> from LSU to the Tennessee Titans. I mean, there was a lot of defensive players from LSU going in the top two rounds of this, of this draft. And I don't know – again, we can talk about these other numbers all we want. But, okay, I think Sean Wade is probably a first-round draft pick this mm-hmm. next year. I think that's a, a safe bet at this point. If, if, you know, please, no wagering, but a safe bet at this point. Um, but are there other first round draft picks on this 2020 Ohio State defense for the 2021 NFL draft? So that's almost the question. Okay, so if we're going to come up with an expectation, I think we should just go ahead and do that then, right now. Then, if the expectation is they're going to be in the middle of the road, if they're going to be like what LSU was, that means there's two guys that we'll just say that. We'll say two guys where even if they aren't like, Sean Wade's one, and then that means somebody else, whether it's Zach Harrison, Tyreek Smith, Baron Browning, whoever, Seven Banks, Josh Proctor. We're saying that they're middle of the pack, but there are two guys who are, you know, pretty, pretty good, pretty darn good, given those circumstances. And they've already got one, so we're saying the expectation then is that there's going to be one other guy then. I think they don't need to necessarily exceed that expectation, which means there's two or three other guys instead of just Sean Wade and one other guy who's, you know, first or second round pick NFL draft while everybody else is, is, you know, is good enough. I mean, I don't, I guess as I'm sitting here on June 2nd, third, for those of you who are listening when this finally gets posted, I think Ohio state has some things to prove 
on defense to say that it's as good of a defense as LSU had in 2019. Yeah, but you can start- say the same thing about LSU at this point last year as well. No one thought, you know, that was the case. There was probably – Grant Delpit was probably the only guy – obviously, we don't cover LSU, so we don't know this for a fact, but Grant Delpit was probably the only guy last year at this point that would be their Sean, their version of what Sean Wade is for Ohio State, a guy who is a first or second round draft pick, a finalist for the, you know, the, the Thorpe Award, obviously ended up winning the award. That's probably how things were looked at then. And obviously things changed once the season started. But you know, I, there's probably some guys out there who felt like LSU was in a similar position where it was just, it's Grant Delpit, can anybody else show up? Well, it's a tough comparison to make because nobody was thinking about LSU also on offense okay. last year being what they are. Um, I I think people are coming into this season with a much higher expectation nationally of what uh, Justin Fields and this Ohio State offense is. Now it's just a matter of will the defense be something that comes along and helps push the the entire program up to that upper echelon and and get, you know, break through the semifinal and get into a championship game and win it? Or will it be the thing that kind of pulls them down and, and is, is some kind of an anchor or a hindrance in them winning the, you know, the biggest, most important games on the schedule. So time will tell. We are going to find that out here in a few months. Hopefully, obviously we're still in a holding pattern as to what this season exactly is going to look like, but uh, we are optimistic that there's going to be football this fall. We believe that there will at least be a big 10 season. So uh, we're going to take a break here, but when we come back, we're going to continue talking big 10 football. I'll be joined by Chad Leistico of the Des Moines Register, and we're going to talk about the Iowa Hawkeyes, who are the week six opponent after the bye week on the Buckeyes 2020 schedule. Stay tuned. We're joined today on Buckeye Talk by Chad Leistico. He covers Iowa football and, and other Iowa sports for the Des Moines Register. Chad, thanks for joining this morning. How are things going in Iowa today? Oh, not too bad. Not too bad. Uh... Yeah, our state's been kind of open here for a while, so we're kind of moving around slowly and uh, <laughs> uh, for our family cautiously. But uh, uh, I believe Iowa football coaches return to their offices today as we talk and uh, the players get back on June 8th. So things are kind of speeding up here. You know, things were already in a state of flux or kind of just this uh, an, un- an uneasiness through the pandemic and how that how we're coming out of that and what that means for the fall. And then we have the events of the last week. Um, how did that affect the Iowa community, the, the greater Iowa University of Iowa community? Like, what, what, what did you see kind of around what was happening this weekend in the protests? And, and did any of that kind of it was it was a very big presence here in Columbus, a bigger city. What were you seeing in Iowa? Yeah, pretty, pretty substantial uh, in downtown Des Moines on Friday night. Uh, things got pretty nasty. Same on uh, Saturday night. And uh, seemed like uh, all around the state, uh, there, you know, there were pretty significant protests with damage. And um, in fact, my my colleague uh, who covers the Hawkeyes with me, Mark Emmert, uh, is from Minneapolis. Uh, no relation to the NCAA president, right. by the way. Right. <laughs> but uh, but he uh, he is from Minneapolis actually, and uh, was reassigned. Uh, he has been covering the coronavirus the last few months uh, instead of Iowa football. Uh, and now he's been uh, assigned to help the USA Today network up in Minneapolis uh, regarding the protests. So it's affecting um, our newsrooms as well. In fact, we had a reporter jailed last night uh, who they didn't know she was press. And uh, so it's been pretty nuts. Um, 
uh, <laughs> in our world. And uh, and honestly, as we cover, it's it's far, far reduced scale, obviously, but even in the sports world, it's just kind of a weird time right now to cover things. You know, this is a heavier question than I probably would have expected to ask um, as we're doing the, the Iowa preview podcast, the, the kind of this ser- continuing the series we've been doing. But, you know, I, I used to cover Purdue, so I kind of have seen both sides of the Big Ten where you have sort of maybe smaller communities, um, more rural communities, frankly, less diverse communities. And you have places that are more like Columbus or Minneapolis where uh, it's a more diverse community, bigger cities. And I, I'm curious how you've seen that kind of dynamic at Iowa over the years. And and if if events like this kind of almost – in a way, do they help bring those communities together because there are people who may be seeing it through the lens of the athletes in, in a way that they wouldn't normally ever really have that kind of perspective? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, Iowa is a state that is uh, 91% white, um, so it, you're definitely correct. Uh, you know, this is not uh, an overly diverse state. However, it's... it's <laughs> uh, Politically speaking, uh, you know, there's there's, you know, very, very red portions of the state and very, very blue portions of the, of the state. So uh, finding common ground sometimes is hard. But I do think uh, you're right. I think ath- uh, athletes uh, or sports uh, in particular in Iowa City, which is you know very a progressive community, um, you know, you, you see, uh, you know, you see a different side of things, maybe from from athletes speaking up and. Uh, I, I do think there's there's quite a bit of support, um, and Iowans as a, as a whole, I think in general are uh, you know pretty uh, I don't know uh, rule abiding for the most part, and uh, Iowa nice is kind of a, a thing. Uh, so I've seen it both ways though. It's, there's there's definitely division here, but also a lot of unity. So I hope it hope it trends toward the latter here as we proceed in these coming days. We might as well get all of the big topics out of the way so we can get into football. But uh, this, <laughs> this 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 next topic does involve football. But you already mentioned it before with with what Mark had to do to go cover the the COVID nineteen situation. There's been other sports reporters around the country. We talked to Keith Sargent from our um, our sister papers mm-hmm. NJ.com. Um, I shouldn't say papers, sister sites NJ.com. Um, and and he it's same thing. He had been moved over to to report on that kind of exclusively over the summer. Um, but specifically for Iowa, we've been asking this question about Ohio State, like, and I'm doing some reporting right now as to the budgetary effects of no attendance, smaller attendance, what that's going to mean. I'm sure you guys have done similar stuff. I guess where where are things sitting right now with with what? How could it potentially affect Iowa? Maybe the, the Iowa level of schools, if that makes sense, uh, level of athletic program. Um, if there, if the football attendance is, is significantly compromised, and what are kind of the maybe the short and long term effects as you, as you see it? Yeah, I, I actually be uh, uh, we could probably have a quick back and forth on that topic here. But uh, at Iowa, football tickets uh, bring in about twenty two to twenty three million dollars a year. So that's uh, that's kind of what you're talking about there, uh, plus donations, and so. Um, you know, if there's a reduced capacity, I think you'd be talking, you know, maybe half that, maybe less. So that's obviously not a drop in the bucket. But so far, Iowa has uh, has uh, the AD Gary Barta uh, has said that 
you know, they, uh, they're kind of planning for maybe some uh, staff pay cuts, et cetera, but they haven't um, invoked any of those just yet. I think they're just trying to wait and see exactly what plays out. And, and interestingly, and maybe it's not a surprise, but maybe it is to you, but uh, for now, Iowa is still planning on full capacity at Kinnick Stadium. So uh, now they, they realize that may not be realistic. Um, and I, I don't think that we will see a, a, a sellout crowd regardless, uh, you know, right. just because there's a lot of apprehension of attendance, um, sure. especially from the, you know, Iowa fan base is a, a big chunk of it is in the, you know, elderly portion. So right. uh, it's just a, it's just going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. Uh, we're almost a little under 100 days to kick off. So a long ways to go on that front. But. Uh, I don't think you'll see Iowa cancel sports. I don't know what you're seeing on, from Ohio State's end, but uh, uh, you know, I think right now they, they're kind of hoping to tread water here over the next year and you know kind of regroup. Yeah, Ohio State is in an interesting situation, and they're one of a few, I guess, in the Big Ten that you could say this about. But you know, Gene Smith a couple weeks ago made some headlines when he said there might only be 20 to 22,000 people in Ohio stadium. Um, then, and then if those guidelines, and that's based on kind of what we know, current distancing guidelines. And if those guidelines get relaxed, you could get up to like 40 or 50,000, which for Ohio state is only half capacity, but for which for a lot of the big 10, um, they love to draw a guaranteed, you know, 50,000 people per right. game. So I, for Ohio state, I think the question is, you know, they have 36 sports. I don't know how many sports does Iowa have. Oh man, uh, I think it's twenty-four. I think it's okay, twenty-four. Yeah, significantly fewer sports than that. And it's, yeah. it's it's a it's sort of a point of pride for Ohio State that they're the school that that offers this many sports. They offer everything. They have you know everything as a potential even partial scholarship sport. So they've been very 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 reluctant to touch that in the past. Not that they've necessarily needed to. Um, I think kind of as as you're saying, I think they will probably pursue every other possible avenue to avoid that just because it is such a, a point of pride. And it, it kind of comes down to, do you look at offering those sports as something that a, a program of their size should do, needs to do, however you want to say it, or is it indicative of some kind of bloat? It's, it's, it's just a, a thing you don't have to have. You just want to have it. And um, right. is that where it gets affected now? And I think it's going to be interesting to see, um, and maybe maybe the maybe things get relaxed to the point that attendance isn't hurt that bad and they can float through this fall with right. minimal damage all over the country and then get into next year and it opens back up and we look back and say, you know, boy, that was a, a, a close call. Um, but if it is as bad if that where you can have no attendance or, or significantly reduced attendance, what is that going to mean throughout the country? And it probably isn't even going to hurt places like Iowa and Ohio State as much as it is that next tier down. Um you know, places in like all the Mac schools in Ohio, for instance. Yeah, for sure. And um, yeah, it is interesting as we just have these conversations and looking at bottom lines that you do realize uh, just how much <laughs> football means when you really look at the numbers, because yep. pretty much no sport makes money uh, except for football and men's basketball um, at Iowa wrestling makes money, but um, you know, they lead the nation in attendance in wrestling. So, um, but that's about it. <laughs> so yeah. um it's it's pretty amazing the deficit spending and so you, you see the you see what's potentially coming if if there's a you know 
major, major reduction in football. I mean, let's say they have an, you know, an eight-game football schedule too, or nine-game schedule, which actually would be kind of a win, maybe almost this year. That's going to be a, a significant uh, reduction, you would think, in, in revenues um, across the board. So. Yeah, a lot of a lot of pain or whatever you want to call it, financial pain, I guess you could see coming um, for sports in general. And I'm curious how how it, it affects in the future the way, not even this, maybe just the way that they look at reserves because Ohio State has something like 10.3 million in reserves as the end of the fiscal year um, on a 200 million dollar annual athletic budget because mm-hmm. I don't think anybody ever thinks well, what about that year where we can't have any football games and have no revenue? They get $60 million annually ticket revenue from football. So what happens that year where you don't have that? Like nobody had ever considered that. Well, now that's kind of on the table, even if it doesn't come to fruition. So how do all athletic programs, do they look differently at the way they spend? Do they look like they, do they consider having a bigger rainy day fund kind of thing as being more essential in case this ever comes up in the future again? I don't know. Yeah, they should. I mean, I, I think that would be my that would be my uh, first thought as an AD would be, why were we spending all this money on <laughs> whatever, yeah. you know, yeah. these last, uh, you know, fruitful years? I mean, uh, had to. Yeah, not much of a rating day fund. I was reserves uh, got depleted a couple of years ago by uh, by a lawsuit uh, involving a university and a, a former field hockey coach and administrator. So. Uh, but they still do have some reserves, but but still things like that, uh, things like uh, sixty million dollar deficits, uh, you know, could have been maybe accounted for. But uh, yeah, definitely, uh, I think you'll see tighter spending at least in the near future. So, how much of a spring did Iowa get to have? Iowa football get to have before COVID nineteen shut everything down. Ohio State had three practices, so they basically had that first week. We had access to them once, uh, a practice that was open to the media, so we didn't see a whole lot. How much did Iowa get to have, and, and what did you get to learn from it? Uh, yeah, zero practices uh, for Iowa. They hadn't even gotten started yet. Uh, they typically go pretty late in the calendar, late March to late April. Um, so they really weren't even that close to starting, to be honest. Uh, but they did. Uh, they did get all of their... Uh, winter conditioning in so that's an eight weeks eight week period they like to get uh, a, that base in there before they go to spring break and then they come back from spring break and, and go to practice uh, that's the typical Kirk Ferentz formula uh, you know uh, doesn't he doesn't change too much uh, obviously going into his 22nd year here so um, uh, they did not get anything in on that front but they felt good about the the strength gains um, you know physically that they made before practice they're just missing that practice time yeah there were a couple of big 10 programs uh, i want to say it was purdue and northwestern maybe they got like eight practices in mm-hmm. uh, i know purdue was one of them i can't remember the other one and then everybody else is kind of in the same boat like you were lucky to get ohio state was kind of fortunate to get three many programs got zero it, any from conversations you're having any do, do the people at iowa feel like zero spring practices really set them back or do they look at it as everybody is essentially in that boat it's you're almost an exception if you got to have a semi-full spring yeah the way uh, the way they viewed it is yeah everyone's in the same boat and and they would almost rather have that strength and conditioning period more than the on-field practice i don't think uh kirk ferris has been pretty vocal about you know 
you know, what, what would those three practices have really gotten us anyway? Um, so uh, they at least feel good about that part of it. And, and they do have a pretty veteran, they, they, we, we can get into this obviously, but they have, they have some good veteran position groups coming back. They don't have the quarterback um, coming back, but, but they have a lot of, of pretty uh, well-established, I guess, uh, players. So they feel okay about that. Um, I want to get into the roster a little bit more, but before we do that, I wanted to ask about recruiting. Um, Ohio State has has been putting together a pretty impressive 2021 recruiting class, but there's four other teams in the top 11 if you go by the 24/7 composite, and Iowa is for the fourth of those teams, ranked 11th nationally right now, and that's on the total um, recruiting mm-hmm. points thing. So, so right now with some schools still very early in their classes, that that can get skewed a little bit. Um, but you've been doing this for a while now, covering Iowa athletics, Iowa football. And I'm curious how you, how you look at recruiting rankings when you analyze where Iowa needs to be to compete at the standard Iowa should be at. Because at, at Ohio State, the, the fans here, I think the expectation is if there's a year where Iowa or Ohio State is outside the top, well, certainly the top 10 nationally or maybe even top five, there's kind of a, hey, what's wrong or you know, they look at it as, as as something they have to now overcome, that they were only 12th nationally in the recruiting rankings <laughs> in a given year or whatever. How do you – obviously, the, those things are – they're different standards of what's realistic for, for different programs there. So how do you look at what Iowa needs to accomplish from a recruiting standpoint? Yeah, Iowa uh, typically kind of is in the world of a you know, range of – maybe ranking around 40th in the country in recruiting. So to be 11th right now is actually, uh, and obviously that's probably going to dip because of the total number of recruits, but they've actually had a really strong uh, recruiting cycle. Um, so far they've gotten, um, uh, I think I think the COVID-19 has actually helped Iowa quite a bit because uh, you know they kind of count on uh, getting in early their best shot is to get in early with, with some of the best prospects in their region and then, you know, bank on that relationship to kind of win out over time. And, and since there hasn't been campus visits, et cetera, uh, they've gotten quite a few commitments actually uh, this spring. I think they maybe have eight um, during, during the COVID pandemic, maybe even more. Um, so, uh, and one of them was, uh, was an offensive lineman that picked, that actually did pick Iowa over Michigan and Ohio state uh, the young man's name was David Davidkoff, and he was uh, he was down to those three schools and uh, uh, had not been to Ohio State yet, and so uh, but you know can't go there or couldn't go right. there, so uh, and wanted to get the decision out of the way. You know maybe his decision is different if he's able to visit Columbus, um, but he he ended up sticking with Iowa, and that's actually probably the you know the top recruit they've gotten so far. So uh, expectation wise, uh, you know. The Iowa staff and I, frankly, me, uh, don't put a lot of stock in recruiting ratings, except for like the, you know, the five stars that Ohio State gets all the time. <laughs> I mean, those guys, you, you can, you know, uh, Iowa just doesn't get those guys unless they have a legacy like A.J. Epinesa was. He's the only five star they've gotten in the last 15 years. Um, and uh, so you kind of realize that Iowa's not going to play in that world. Um, but recruiting rankings are i mean if you go back and look at iowa's 2016 class for example uh 
I think it was ranked 42nd in the country. And, um, you know, that, that was the class with uh, TJ Hawkinson, Noah Fant, who became first round draft picks, Nate Stanley, uh, you know, who's the quarterback for three years. Um, you go down the line, uh, you know, a tremendous, tremendous class. If you re ranked him, they'd probably be a top 10 national class. So it's just kind of what uh, Iowa, Iowa kind of gets. They try to find the, the uh, you know, the low three stars that probably should be four um, and, and try to turn them into, you know, to what they can in three or four years. You know, I'm looking back through the, the 247 composite right now, and I'm back to 2014, and I haven't found a class where Iowa was ranked higher than 35th. In fact, I'm yeah. going backwards. Like, they're getting down, <laughs> they get down into the 50s. I'm at 58 right now for 2014. But I don't think anybody looks at uh, Iowa as a only a top – 50 or top 40 program, I think, you know, very pretty consistently, they're a team you expect to be in the, the top 20, top 25. One of the teams in the West that's in the mix to um, be able to get to Indianapolis and play for a, a conference championship. So what, where do you see like the, the biggest, um, I guess, developmental success? Like how is Iowa doing that, um, getting the most out of its play? I know that's a very complicated answer that probably has a complicated question with a lot of answers, but if you had to kind of narrow it down, what what do they do that allows them to, to maximize that talent the way they do? Yeah, I mean they have uh, they have the nation's highest paid strength coach, as you, you may well know, uh, and Chris Doyle, and they put a lot of stock in in that strength and conditioning program. Um, and so they've you know they've done a really good job. I think uh, they kind of changed some recruiting philosophies uh, starting in sixteen with that sixteen class I mentioned. Um, and, uh, you know, where they're really zeroing in on, on culture fits as opposed to, you know, taking a chance on a guy that maybe isn't a culture fit. But uh, that, I guess just uh, so they tr- they're trying to do a better job uh, identifying those guys that aren't going to fracture the locker room because they, they know they can't count on, uh, you know, a five star roster like Ohio State or even Michigan or, um, you know, some other schools. Uh, it, you know, like Notre Dame in our region. And uh, so they kind of count on them to those guys to uh, make up for that with, with culture, et cetera. And they, we've seen that kind of play out in the last five years for Iowa. I mean, they've won 47 games in the last five years, which is pretty good. I think it's, uh, I think it's top 10 among power five. I uh, could be, could be wrong on that, but it's, it's right in that top 10 region um, right up there with Penn state. Um, so it's, you know, I think they're, they're on the right track, but the, but the big thing for Iowa right now is getting past Wisconsin. They've really had a hard time, uh, with them, uh, and, and they're really, uh, built in a similar way. So you kind of have to say Wisconsin has, has, uh, you know, has the edge on Iowa right now in terms of uh, being that developmental program. So what is that missing link? Uh, I think that's what Iowa coaches are spending a lot of the off season uh, last few off seasons trying to work on is, is how, you know, how do we get past Wisconsin in the West? Cause that's really the, that's the team you've got to beat, uh, to win the West most years anymore. And, and it really shouldn't be that daunting of our, uh, you know, recruiting wise, they, they get similar guys and, and they have similar philosophies, but, uh, on the field, Wisconsin has just gotten the better by the last few years. So maybe not exactly the answer you were looking for there, but, but, uh, they, they do a good job uh, developing, uh, you know, their their guys into NFL players um, and they get them to the next level. But just 
finding that on-field formula, you know, to get to the Big Ten title game, I think has still been elusive for Iowa um, these last four seasons, five seasons, four seasons. We're talking to Chad Lastico from the Des Moines Register here on Buckeye Talk. We're talking Iowa football. This is a next edition in our kind of weekly uh, preview we've been doing of the 2020 Ohio State football schedule. And, and Chad, you bring up an interesting point because when we talk about Wisconsin uh, in kind of the context of Ohio State football, they're seen as sort of emblematic of, you know, the that's kind of almost the style of the West in some ways. And that's a team that can can get to that championship game, but it's not necessarily a style of football maybe that ends up challenging Ohio State uh, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about Iowa. It, so it's almost like that's almost the next step they have to take before they can maybe jump up and, and, and do something like what they would be asked to do this year, come into Ohio Stadium and win that game or win a Big Ten championship to, to have to first get past the, the Wisconsin problem. Because right. it still seems like there would be some separation there between beating Wisconsin and then being able to step up and beat an Ohio State or maybe even a Penn State or whoever comes out of the East. Yeah, right. And uh, I think what's uh, what's frustrating for Iowa fans, uh, and again, I mean, I think there's an appreciation for for what the Hawkeyes have accomplished the last three years. They won, uh, you know, they've won three bowl games in a row. They won 27 games uh, under Nate Stanley, and they won, you know, they beat they throttled USC in the Holiday Bowl. But what's frustrating is they see what Iowa did to Ohio State in 2017, <laughs> and like, yeah. where is that every week, you know? And and then you. Yeah, you, you can't get past uh, Northwestern uh, a couple times, and you can't get past Purdue a couple times. You covered those games uh, with me uh, where Iowa, you know, at home. I think it was the week – was it the, It was two weeks after that Ohio State game they lost to Purdue at home. Uh, you know, so um, it's just uh, – uh, you know, the, so they know they can do it, but they, they just haven't, uh, you know, maybe gotten – gotten to that point. So they know they can beat Ohio state. I think they, they can, they've proven they can do it. They've beaten Michigan um, actually more often than they've lost to Michigan in the last decade. But, but you're right. Weirdly that the Wisconsin's and the Northwestern sometimes clog them up. Um, and, and so it's a, uh, it's an interesting dynamic. And I think, you know, Iowa likes its chances this year in the big 10 West, but uh, it's just such a weird year. Uh, it's hard to know what's going to, how it's going to play out. It's a perfect segue actually to my next question, which was that 2017 game in Iowa city where Iowa put a pretty good thumping on Ohio state, a number three ranked Ohio state team at the time. And that game still has a presence in the Ohio state fan base. I think just around the program, Um, you still had a lot of players in the program, even last season who remembered that game. Um, some of them, you know, freshmen, sophomores, that sort of thing, but playing in that game and remembered how it felt and certainly remembered the, the game the next year, which kind of uh, at Purdue, very similar result that mm-hmm. I think sort of um, <laughs> exacerbated their feelings about those games. I'm curious, where, what presence does that game, if any, still have in the Iowa fan base from 2017 or around the program? Did they, Does it... Does it linger at all, or is it is it such a you only get to play them once every four years that it maybe has a different feeling there? Um, I would, I mean, from the fan base perspective, uh, I think they're still riding high from that win. Um, 
you know, that's uh, that's one that gets brought up in memes often, you know, like, uh, you know, like uh, uh, you see Michael Jordan looking at his iPad with the, you know, the raised eyebrows. And then, you know, the next screen is like a screenshot of Iowa 55, Ohio State 24. You know, that's <laughs> you'd see that from <laughs> from the, you know, the Hawkeye faithful. So uh, the fan base definitely uh, looks at that as uh, looks upon that fondly, still kind of gets joy from that. Just because it's uh, it was kind of out of character, I think uh, that was a day Iowa, you know, kind of threw the ball over the all over the field. Um, obviously, the interception on the first play of the game, I think, makes that almost even more of like a magical night. I mean, Iowa was a twenty-some point underdog in that game. It's not like it was, you know, Ohio State minus seven and a half on the road. It was like I think it was twenty-one or twenty-two points uh was the spread that game i mean iowa was not expected to do much of anything so um so yeah there's a lot of euphoria from that um but you know as as far as the program goes coaching whatever i mean i think they know that they can hang with those teams ferentz's teams have often ferentz's teams rarely get blown out um and usually can hang in those types of games Uh, so i think there's a belief that if they can get to indianapolis you know they can hang with anybody uh, but, but yeah, I don't think they're, you know, patting themselves on the back for that one still. I think it's more of a fan base type thing. But I was assuming for the fan base, you know, if you, in a given year, if you beat Ohio state or maybe a Penn state, you know, one of those upper echelon programs, but Ohio state number one in the big 10 right now, if you can beat that team and then you go on and win like the music city bowl or whatever, I would still think that regular season win probably lingers more than, than one of these kind of secondary bowls, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No doubt about it. I think that, that one is, I did actually wrote a post uh, after the holiday bowl because there was a lot of similar feelings about uh, putting the hammer down on USC in that game. You know, I was uh, racked up 49 points in that game against USC and uh, blew them out and uh, kind of went back in the Kirk Ferentz era and ranked, you know, the most uh, kind of euphoric type wins of the Ferentz era and, and uh, ha- have Ohio State uh, ranked number one. Or I think it was maybe not, maybe the last 10 years I did it on. Uh, I, uh, Ohio State game was ranked number one. So uh, I think that that is, is uh, accurate for where, where that game stands uh, in the last decade uh, for Iowa football. You mentioned before, um, we'll get out of the Big Ten West after this question, but you mentioned before, the how Iowa kind of looks up at Wisconsin is that that hurdle to cross. How seriously are you taking kind of the emergence of Minnesota right now as kind of maybe the next spoiler in that equation, the team that could really grow into something and, and become a, a big presence in the West? They did it last year. Um, I, I'm not sure how much I believed in how great they were last year, but you also have a coach there who in P.J. Fleck, who seems like he could build something over the long run. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, uh, I, I mean, I'm taking Minnesota uh, very seriously, and uh, I, I think that he's doing a lot of really good things up there. Uh, kind of the flip side is that Minnesota, or Iowa is to Minnesota what Wisconsin is to Iowa. I mean, Iowa's had Minnesota's number the last five years. They've won Floyd or Rosedale the last five years. Uh, Minnesota came in here in November, uh, 9-0, and and uh, Iowa beat them 23-19 uh, to this last fall and kind of spoiled that perfect season. And obviously Wisconsin ended up winning the West uh, as a byproduct of that. So, um, so yeah, I think, 
uh, among the, I th- I think Minnesota is going to be right there. Just like I think, I actually think Purdue's uh, going to be a real contender this year in the West um, with everybody they've got coming back in terms of playmakers and how they've kind of foiled Iowa in the past. So I, the West is, I like covering the West because it's, you know, there's, it's wide it's, open. It, yeah, it's wide open. Uh, North, you know, Fitzgerald, you never know what he's going to come up with. And, um, you know, uh, you know, don't forget Nebraska. I mean, that's always uh, one of these years, you know, they're probably going to put it together. I mean, so, uh, but yeah, Minnesota for sure is, um, that's, that's kind of the same conversation to me as as Iowa, Wisconsin. I mean, is is this year, you know, PJ Fleck gets gets the best of Iowa. He's 0 for three so far. Um, they play them on a Friday night in September in Minneapolis, so it's the third game of the season for Iowa this year. So that'll be and it's six days after Iowa plays Iowa State, which uh, is a huge rivalry game yeah. uh, over here and takes a lot out of a team. So it's going to be interesting to see how Iowa can manage uh, two rivalry games in a span of seven days um, early in the calendar with, with very limited preparation uh, as we see it today. I'm not as anti Friday night big 10 games as some people are, but that's a very interesting scheduling decision that was made to to make (laughs) Iowa play that game on a Friday night on the road. Right. Um, Six days after the Iowa State game, that that's tough. Um, yeah, well, let's talk about the 2020 Hawkeyes. Um, like I say, Iowa was a pretty solid team last year. Uh, they did barely crack the national top 100 in total offense, so that's something that's got to move forward, obviously, for them to compete against the kind of teams we're talking about. Tell us about uh, Spencer Petras. I assume that's the guy who's going to emerge as as the starting quarterback this year, and and how can he maybe can he kind of invigorate this offense in some way? Yeah, it's uh, they pronounce it Petrus, just so you know. But uh, the uh, yeah, he's a, a strong-armed uh, kid from California. He went to the same high school as Jared Goff did, and actually broke uh, Goff's records in high school. So he comes in with with some pretty good credentials. He was an Oregon State uh, decommit, and Iowa just uh, kind of snapped him up uh, right before Christmas uh, that year, and then he was on campus in January, uh, early enrolled. And so he's actually had uh, three springs uh, on campus, even though he's a redshirt sophomore, but obviously he didn't get the spring practice this year. Um, so the, their hopes are really high for him. He's kind of been Nate Stanley's understudy, uh, but Stanley never missed a game. Uh, so, we, you know, we haven't seen much of Petrus at all, just mop-up work. So uh, he's uh, he's kind of like the big question of the team um, there. There's a lot of buzz within, um, you know, the locker room from players that Petrus is the real deal. Uh, but, you know, we, you know, we just haven't seen anything in a game, so hard to say. Uh, but he has kind of got that reputation as kind of a galvanizing uh, locker room guy. He's one of their 12 offseason captains as a sophomore. Um, so uh, that's pretty, uh, you know, that's good news for him. Uh, yeah, he, but, but as far as I see it, I mean, he is really the kind of, uh, uh, it's up to him how good this team is going to be because they're really actually pretty, pretty well stocked at, at every other offensive position. When we looked back at the 2017 Iowa game, the 2018 Purdue game, one of the similarities we saw was there being kind of 
quote unquote sneaky NFL talent in those games that was then able to exploit some things in the Ohio State defense. Um, you already mentioned Noah Fant and, and TJ Hawkinson, you know, first round tight ends. Um, I think there were probably some other guys in the mix there. It, you know, Nate Stanley had a solid career quarterback. I'm, I'm looking at this Ohio State's, or I'm sorry, this Iowa team's receiver group, which I think is pretty highly thought of. What do you see um, from them as potentially being able to go out and threaten um, a team like Ohio State? Well, uh, you know, Iowa really has hardly ever had good receivers uh, under Kirk Ferentz. It's been a long probably over the, his 21 plus years has probably been the weakest position group uh, in general that, that they've had the hardest time recruiting. Uh, they had one, they had one or two uh, pretty good years, uh, 09 and, and 10. And that was when Iowa was actually, uh, you know, battling Ohio state for a big 10 championship in 09. But, uh, but so flash forward to today, uh, this is Iowa's best uh, receivers room you know, that I've, covered uh it's i think it's uh uh it's got a, a mix of kind of uh speed uh in brandon and i'm sorry amir smith marset and tyrone tracy uh those guys those are uh, kind of guys that can take a jet sweep to the house uh type of guys uh, we saw that we they actually both scored a rushing touchdown in the holiday bowl um and marset uh, had a kick return touchdown in both the regular season finale uh, at Nebraska and uh, in the Holiday Bowl, so uh, he's uh, he's their fastest player. Uh, he's going to be a senior, six one, one eighty five. I think he's a pro prospect. And then uh, they've got kind of that big X receiver that they don't usually have in Brandon Smith. Uh, he's a he's going to be a senior, six three, two nineteen, giant hands. And then they've got a possession guy, uh, Nico Regani, who actually led the team in catches last year. Um, kind of in that slot. So they've kind of got a nice mix uh, in their top four. And then you throw into there, um, you know, they've got a tight end they're pretty excited about in Sam Laporta, uh, kind of the next uh, kind of a mini Hawkinson type version. Uh, he had six catches in the Holiday Bowl as a true freshman. So they feel really good about the receivers. I, I totally um, am interested to see, you know, what this team can do like i said if petrus is good that's that's going to give brian ference a chance to actually open things up um and we saw that in the holiday bowl uh with that receiver group um because they don't usually have this type of group and so that's why it's kind of a fascinating season uh ahead iowa was a top 12 defense nationally last season obviously had one of the best defensive players in the country, certainly Big Ten and A.J. Epine. So he's moved on to the NFL. Uh, on that side of the ball, where do you see Ohio, or I'm sorry, where do you see Iowa kind of regrouping and and trying to play at that same level? Yeah, they ended up uh, fifth nationally in scoring defense. It was a really strong year for Iowa uh, on that side of the ball. And uh, a lot of that was also ball control offense and, and facing uh, – I think the you know obviously they faced uh, I think they shut out two teams in the Big Ten uh, Northwestern and why can't I think of the other one uh, Rutgers <laughs> so yeah. yeah you know that helps an your obvious stats. choice yeah <laughs> no to that <laughs> I should have just thought of that yeah <laughs> so uh, but uh, yeah they the defensive line is going to be probably the biggest question uh, for Iowa this year they like to depend on a four man rush they don't like to blitz much 
and they haven't had to the last three years because they've had Epinesa, they've had Anthony Nelson, uh, who was drafted by the Buccaneers a few years ago. Um, so they're going to be uh, pretty raw at a defensive end, and they, they lose both starting defensive tackles as well. Um, now they do bring in uh, a grad transfer from Northern Illinois, Jack Heflin, uh, who was, uh, I think, the I, seventh or ninth ranked uh, defensive tackle in the country, um, according to Pro Football Focus. So that was a big grad transfer ad in the trenches. So I think they're going to be okay there. But uh, you, know, you expect uh, you, you expect with Phil Parker's defense that Iowa kind of does a pretty good job in that bend, bend don't break uh, scheme, plan, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they just don't give up a lot of points. Um, they might sometimes give up yards, but, but they're pretty stingy in the scoreboard. They're, they're usually among the nation's leaders and not allowing rushing touchdowns. So they're pretty good in the red zone on defense. Um, so it's just kind of what I would expect overall, just kind of a, a tough to score on um, Iowa defense, but one that will uh, I think have a lot of problems with Justin Fields. I mean, that's, that's basically the type of quarterback that Iowa – uh, has the most trouble against defensively. I mean, you look at like uh, Trace McSorley, you know, slash Saquon Barkley. I mean, that was that was tough for Iowa. Uh, you know, those those types of matchups usually don't go well for the Hawkeyes. So uh, they just don't see a lot of Justin Fields type quarterbacks in the Big Ten West or on their schedule. So uh, that you know, as far as the matchup with Ohio State goes, uh, that's probably the one I would be most concerned about. Uh, from Iowa's end. From my recollection, uh, most matchups with Saquon Barkley didn't go very well. Uh, yeah, Whoever right. they were playing. So same with Justin Fields, actually. And uh, and so, um, but I, your your point is is definitely taken. A, a couple of things before we wrap up. Um, you mentioned before Kirk Ferentz in his 22nd year. Where do you see? Uh, how soon do you see that transition happening? I, you know, he he won't stay there forever. Obviously, at some point, he'll he'll move on to the next stage of his life, and Iowa will need to go find someone to keep, you know, carry forward what he's done there, which is, you know, annually make that a program that I think at least has the respect of the Big Ten and, and occasionally will jump up and, and really make noise on a national level. Um, have, do you feel like the, the kind of the wheels are already in motion, not to push him out, but to have that kind of transition to someone else who can oversee a program of that level? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the uh, the annual question, you know, here in Iowa City. And, and obviously, Ferentz has, has experienced a bit of a resurgence here um, as he reaches. Uh, he'll be 65 come August. Uh, so, you know, he's obviously, you know, age-wise, probably, uh, you know, winding down. His contract runs through the 2025 season. Uh, but really, I think, uh, you know, Iowa fans, I think, are increasingly getting more comfortable with the idea of his son, Brian Ferentz. Uh, taking over the program. He's going into his fourth year as offensive coordinator. Uh, he was the first year off- offensive coordinator in that Ohio State game that we mentioned uh, in 2017. And I think that, you know, he's got Patriots DNA, uh, you know, what used to be Rob Gronkowski, uh, you know, Rob Gronkowski's position coach. So he's got, uh, uh, you know, pretty good credentials, but he's still pretty young. He's still only uh, 37 years old. So um, I think, a lot of Iowa fans see that as the succession plan if Kirk, um, you know, can maintain success. Uh, I wouldn't be, but he doesn't want to give it up. Uh, but I would be, 
you know, if I had if I had to predict, I would say, you know, maybe Kirk coaches another three years. But, uh, you know, there's not any science behind that because uh, he's kind of uh, uh, he's kind of a guy that uh, loves coaching still. And he actually is a, a a fitness guru and he's gotten his body in really good shape. Uh, he's very healthy. Um, so he's, uh, he, I think he, he just enjoys what he's doing too much to, to walk away. Uh, now he has told me that, uh, you know, someday he wouldn't mind coming back and being like a position coach or a volunteer coach, not a position coach, but like, you know, cause he doesn't want to, you know, I don't think at age 70, want to go around recruiting, but you know, maybe come back as a volunteer coach or something like that on the offensive line, which is his, area of expertise so um it'll be interesting to see when how that story ends um you know if he has like a you know magical season you know does he go out with that something like that you just don't know um how it's going to end um you know you don't want you know from an iowa perspective you wouldn't want it to end poorly either you know where it's you know a, <laughs> a joe paterno Right. You know, not scandal type thing, but, you, you know, that program was starting to fade toward the end of his career. And, and same with Iowa with Hayden Fry. I mean, it was that, that program was deteriorating in the late 90s um, from where Fry had taken it. So I think Ference wants to end strong. And I do see Brian as the most likely successor uh, at this point. Brian Ference, the name that comes up on Buckeye Talk a lot, actually, because of uh, some back and forth he had with Doug uh, Lamery several years ago. So um, our, Oh, our that's right. Yes, yes. <laughs> listeners can probably remember that. We'll see if uh, maybe he'll get that job and, and, and he and Doug will get to rekindle that uh, rivalry here in the, in the future. But uh, one more question. So as of June 1st, and, and understanding you don't have a top-to-bottom knowledge probably of Ohio State's roster, but how likely is it that Iowa can come into Ohio Stadium and upset the Buckeyes this season? Oh man. Um, I mean, I would say, uh, you know, just knowing the talent that Ohio state's annually going to have, um, and just, I mean, just watching them last year, uh, you know, under 15% probably. Uh, but I mean, I am curious to see, it's interesting. Iowa plays, uh, Penn state and Ohio state on the road in back-to-back weeks in October. And I'm interested to, you know, we'll see what the fan presence is, you know, in those games. I mean, that that certainly would impact the environment uh, if, you know, two of the toughest environments in the Big Ten, if not the two toughest. Um, so that's kind of, that'll be an interesting situation. And, uh, you know, will I will I be allowed to cover those road games? I don't know. That's a great <laughs> that's question, another, too. That's another yeah. media question we've got uh, over here is like, uh, you know, will visiting media be allowed to, to go to games, you know, let alone home media? So, um Anyway, that's a that's a sidebar, but but yeah, I think uh, you know I would say less than fifteen percent, but I do I will say overall I do like this Iowa team, uh, how it's made up. If the quarterback comes through, I do think it's got a good chance to win the West. But the schedule, as I just mentioned, I mean they get you know Ohio State and Penn State as road crossovers, so that's a big disadvantage uh, right there. But they do get uh, Wisconsin and Nebraska at home. Um, which, which, uh, and, and Northwestern. So that should help. Um, and they'll probably go over to Purdue and lose like they do, <laughs> like they did a couple of years ago. Um, you know, it's just so you how it kind of goes. The Ohio state Penn state road games. Those are back to back weeks for Iowa. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. They can, they got two really, 
uh, rough stretches on the schedule there. They got the that Iowa State Minnesota double uh, in September, and then the, the Ohio State Penn State double on the road in uh, <laughs> October. Yeah. Last year, uh, a lot of Ohio State fans were up in arms because they had they played Penn State at home and then went at Michigan in the last two games of the regular season. And one of my points at the time was that happens a lot. Like this, it yeah. could happen to any team. Every team, every couple of years, has something in their schedule. I know it might have gotten emphasized because those were the last two games, but still, like what? What's the, so? Just go look at Ohio State fans. Just go look at Iowa's schedule this year, and you get a little bit of a taste of of um, how rough a stretch can be. Uh, for any team, it, it doesn't just happen to you. So, um, <laughs> Chad Leistakow from Des Moines Register, thanks a lot for your time. Really appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you hopefully in Ohio Stadium later this year. Yeah. Time. Yeah. I enjoyed it very much. Anytime, Nathan. Thank you. Thanks a lot. My thanks to Chad Leistakow from the Des Moines Register for joining us. We really appreciate his time. Everybody's busy this time of year trying to fit things in between. Um, the work we have to do and the work stoppages we all have and those sorts of things. So much appreciated that he would join us. And, you know, as, as he discussed, the 2017 game still kind of resonates even for the Iowa fan base. Um, you know, it's a big moment for them. It sometimes is a kind of win that can even supersede the bowl wins that you get later in the year if you can knock off a team like Ohio State. And obviously I wasn't around for the 2017 game. Steven, you weren't yet covering the team even for the 2017 game. So I wanted to talk with our texters this week for this podcast about how they feel about that game now. So we're, th- we're three years removed from that kind of surprising out of nowhere result. Um, and, and Stephen, you went back and watched that game. So mm-hmm. why don't you give us a quick for anybody who's maybe new to their Ohio state fandom or had completely blacked out what happened that day in Iowa city. Give us a quick rundown of, of what happened that day. Okay, so so for those of you who don't know the score, you know pr- probably everybody remembers the score. Fifty-five to twenty-one, Iowa knocks off number six Ohio State, who'd already already lost to Oklahoma that year. My my biggest stands out were this. There are so many things in that game which I think probably set up some of the things Ohio State has in place now. Obviously, improved quarterback play is at the top of that list. JT Barrett, eighteen for thirty-four. 208 yards and three touchdowns with four interceptions and three of them were just terrible throws. The fourth one, the game ceiling one, which was Josh Jackson's third interception of the game. That's a one-handed interception, you know, near the goal line to kind of seal the victory. That's a big, that's a, I mean, that's an amazing catch for a wide receiver, the kind of catch he made. So the fact that a cornerback or defensive back, whatever he was made that play is impressive. But the other three, he throws a pick six one second into the game by throwing the ball in the coverage he has a strip sack in the second quarter. He throws another ball in the, in the coverage when they're down 24 to 17, trying to drive at the end of the second half to try to tie the game up. He throws an interception there. But bad quarterback play is part of why they lost that game. But also, Iowa was really good at doing something weird, which is, as we've talked about before, has been, I think, the, the, the formula for these lower-level Big Ten West teams who have knocked off Ohio State in the past, Purdue, having Rondell Moore, a high-level, talented guy playing on a team that's not necessarily, you know, constantly had that level of talent. T.J. Hawkinson and Noah Fant, tight end, tight end play, which is what Iowa does. Noah Fant, five catches, 54 yards, two touchdowns. T.J. Hawkinson, five catches, 71 yards, two touchdowns. So they do something really, really well that Ohio State wasn't able to stop. And I think to use the bad word, the bullet, the Sam linebacker, and you see it in, in 20, 2019 when they played Florida Atlantic, when they played Penn State, you know, 
that the tight end usage was no longer a problem when stopping high-level tight ends when you had a guy like Pete Warner out there. Obviously, Court Williams in the 2020 class has been recruited to play that position. You know, Jalen Johnson in 2021 who's recruited to play that position. They've kind of, you know, eliminated that from being a problem. So to set the stage for that Iowa game a little bit, the previous week, Ohio State had a very emotional victory over Penn State. Uh-huh. They were coming off of this, like, you know, crazy surge to a victory in that game. And then you go on the road into a place that's that's traditionally tough to play, I think. I, I think people would, would argue that Kinnick Stadium is traditionally a, a fairly tough place to play in the Big Ten, partially because Iowa's pretty solid. But it's also there's there's a there's a it, it's it's same with same as with basketball there Iowa is kind of a little bit of what I talked about with Chad Lystico was you know I, I feel like Iowa is just a little bit more isolated it feels just a little bit like tightened up in a way that Ohio State is the other way it's like it's this expanse that just kind of spreads across the straight and across state and across the region whereas Iowa is like very much just it's this nucleus that's there. And I feel like that can make it a, a tough place to go into play. I think they get up for the chance to knock off opponents like this. All teams do, I suppose. But Iowa ha- has done it a few times. Did it last year to Minnesota with the season on the line or with the Big Ten Championship, uh, West Championship um, for Minnesota on the line. And then things just started to go downhill quickly for Ohio State, and they couldn't really recover. JT Barrett throws a pick six on the first play of the game. Um, Joey Bosa gets ejected in the second quarter. Just things start to snowball. And before they knew it, it was out of hand. So I wanted to, at the time, as, as you kind of point out, it was because they'd already lost Oklahoma. That was it. They were out of the playoff picture. You lost your second game that year. You're done. So I think at the time that it was, it was this devastating loss. And I was curious as to how people look back at that, if there's still that kind of visceral feeling from that game. And the answer was yes. There were, now I will say there were some texters who said, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm over it. You know, they've won Big Ten championships since then. They've won Rose Bowl since then. They went to the playoff this past year. They sent two guys to the Heisman. Like they've they've had major accomplishments since that game, and it's just one of those things that happened. They've moved past it. But there's some other people who have not. From the four one two, the Iowa loss was an all time low. I was in the stadium the week before for the Penn State comeback. It had truly felt in that moment that the offense had turned a corner and JT was ready to throw more. And then the first few minutes, it all got taken away. The only thing that gives me new perspective in time is that looking back, that team probably wasn't national championship caliber, and that loss helped shape the future of the Ohio State offense, which is now where we are today. We're going to get back to that point again in a minute. Uh, Steven, you already touched on it. Uh, from the 4-8-0, the pain of that Iowa loss has not changed or lessened with time. It hurts and is almost as embarrassing as the Purdue loss the following year. It's one thing to lose a close game, but to get blown out by a significantly inferior team with one of the greatest coaches of all time following an epic comeback win versus Penn State the previous week, just inexcusable. I can handle a close loss or loss where we played well and the other team just played better. Ruin playoff chances in one game, again, just like Purdue the following season. Although in this case, it was much more direct. The, they ended up only losing the one game. and The Purdue loss was their only loss from 2018, but it was mm-hmm. significant enough to keep them out in the eyes of the committee. Some, some people had very uh, distinct experiences for that game. From the 314, Iowa law student, OSU undergrad, 2017. So it would have been the spring of 2017. He graduated from OSU undergrad and then enrolled at Iowa in the fall as a law student. So he was at the game, or he or she. Uh, it was the most unsettling game I've seen as a Buckeye. Kinnick night games have a reputation, but how quickly it turned and just got worse and worse was to me the most unsettling game I've ever seen, not to mention all the crap I got from classmates after wearing OSU gear all week. 
uh, from the 216. I was flying back into Columbus the night of the Iowa game, and there was tension about the game before we took off. Wi-Fi was out, so no one had a score until we landed, and there was a collective groan while we all checked the score, presumably after they landed. And from the 2-1-0, the 2017 Iowa game was deeply unsettling for me. In fact, it happened to be the thing that spurred me to start listening to Buckeye talk. After the, game, I, after the game, I was lost and looking for answers, so I stumbled upon the Iowa postgame episode from that year, and I haven't missed an episode since. Doug likes to bring up our potential slogans. I think lost and looking for answers is probably a good slogan, and not insinuating that you'll find them. Like, that's just the slogan. Like, lost and looking for answers. Buckeye no, talk. Yeah, we are lost and looking for answers. <laughs> but I think – and I said this last year – right after I kind of started and we were talking about this, this concept of trap games and these upset games. And I said at the time that it's good for college football when these games happen, it, it stinks if you're an Ohio state fan, but the trade-off is you have realistic national championship expectations on a fairly consistent basis, especially what's about to happen. What seems to be unfolding in this next era of Ohio state football. I think you're going to be pretty consistently excited about what's going to be ahead of each team now for the foreseeable future. That is something that not every program gets to experience. And then once in a while, you're going to get your heart cut out by a, by a win that just lives in the history of your opponent. And that's part of what makes college football great. It's what part of makes college sports great. And I think it, it's, it's a good thing that the Ohio State fan base isn't, I guess, so just um, doesn't, think, it doesn't think this experience is maybe beneath them. That some people are kind of holding on to this loss that like, oh, we really missed out on something. Yes, we've had other ex- victories and other achievements yes we've got good things coming in the future but man that 2017 game I can still remember how that felt that day I feel like that's a that's a a good thing to kind of carry with you as a fan Uh, yeah I think I'm sure it gives you know college football the March Madness effective you know anybody can win even you know we all know that's not that's not true but it does make things interesting but what it also does is you know I think it forces you know, the Goliaths of the world to do things to continue to move forward as Goliaths of the world, because if you don't, you get stagnated. And then in these years where, you know, maybe you do play a team who has, who does something that, you know, is a weakness for your defense or, or your offense or whatever, they're able to exploit that. And for Ohio State, they needed to evolve with their quarterback play. They needed to evolve their defense. And that year, you know, it, Maybe it evolved. It made them do both almost because what what did we see in 2018? Obviously, they lost Purdue, but they evolved their quarterback play, and you know they started the 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 process of evolving their defense into what it is today. Had a lot of interaction from the 937 area code, so thank you to our our Dayton brothers and sisters and friends who are are listening in from the 937. Well, I just lost it. Oh, the Iowa loss, while still confusing in some ways, proves to me that schedule difficulty does matter. When a team plays strong opponents periodically throughout the year, it increases their chances of not only losing to good teams, but also being upset by lesser teams due to physical or emotional fatigue. Ohio State was coming off the thrilling come-from-behind win over Penn State at that time that had to be both physically and emotionally taxing. I do not believe Ohio State loses that game if they played Wake Forest the week before. And that does kind of play into something that I've, I've pushed back a little bit in the past when people who are against expanding the playoff say, well, the regular season is kind of its own tournament. Like you, you know, you, people get knocked out that way and that that's part of the tournament. I'm not a huge fan of that line of thinking because 
the schedules are so uneven, even within the Big Ten, schedules are uneven. As I was talking to, to Chad Leistico, um, you know, I was got a situation this year for Ohio State fans who didn't like that that Penn State Michigan back to back last year when the first of those two games was at home. You know, uh, Iowa has a their rivalry game against Iowa State, and then six days later they go at Minnesota, so the biggest Big Ten West game of the year potentially. Um, depending on what happens with Wisconsin. And then later in the year, they go at Penn State, at Ohio State, back-to-back. So the Big Ten does a lot of people no favor with their schedules. And you that's a hard thing to predict on a year-to-year basis. Somebody at some point in their schedule probably thinks they're getting jammed a little bit. Whatever. But I will say, I agree, I guess, with the point that – the greater point he's making, it's one that uh, Doug was kind of loudly making at us a few weeks ago on the podcast about why um, Clemson – has such a much easier road to the playoffs because this sort of experience is less likely for them. They don't have as many of these potential just emotional waterfall games where they just come out of it just doused and or empty, however you want to look at it, and then have to go on the road the next week against another. That that Iowa team was, I think, also a bit of an underachiever. And that was the same thing that I wrote about that last year, that both that Iowa team and the Purdue team the next year, they underachieved a little bit record-wise compared to where their talent really was. And so, yes, I think I was only like four and five in the Big Ten that year, but they were better than that. Their talent was better than that. They had NFL talent that, that should have been better than that. So it was kind of just a confluence of events. I think that is less likely to happen. It's something you, I guess, were just alluding to, right, that that sort of scenario is more likely if you're playing in the Big Ten than it is if you're playing in the ACC. And that's because, you know, Clemson doesn't have a game in the ACC where you know that's going to be a hard game. So you spend all week kind of amping yourself up for it. Ohio State knows that regardless of the talent level, the Penn State game is going to be a hard play game. And it has been since 20, 2017, 2018, even last year, even until Ohio State pulled away at the end. That was a, they had to pull that out. You know, that was a competitive football game. And to, you know, have to turn around and, you know, have a, almost a letdown of, man, we just played that. This should be easy. While for in, – in the ACC for Clemson, it's more the, – the, Nor- the North Carolina game is similar to what Ohio State dealt with with Maryland in 2018, where Ohio State's clearly the more talented team. It has no business – the game has no business literally coming down to a two-point conversion failure. We have a text question floating around on one of our lists where someone asked – how many Big Ten teams would you name off as the second best ACC team before you got to mm. an ACC, an actual ACC team behind mm. Clemson? And I think we—it's a great question. I'll give it to you now for something to kind of mull around if you hadn't seen that already. But we can't possibly answer that without Doug being here to be like no, no, zero. No, no. There's yeah. none of them. Yes, that's my. Doug you, you guys are just wrong. You guys are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we'd probably be – I don't know if you would yell at us being wrong about that. I think you'd be more excited to to oh, talk yeah. about how there are, <laughs> there are like, zero teams in the ACC that he would take ahead of Rutgers right now or whatever, I think. But uh, we'll let him answer that for himself. I shouldn't put words in his mouth. But um, we'll keep that – we're going to reserve that for when uh, he comes back. But getting to a greater point that you made, and, and I think this will be – we're going to probably write about it. I would imagine right now everybody on the Ohio State beat is going to write about this going into that game in uh, October. What that Iowa game in 2017 means for 2020, how that sort of changed the trajectory of things. Um, we had a couple of answers uh, from the 585. Oh, Iowa. 
they could have like I've never seen someone text me a sigh before, but that was basically what they say. <laughs> oh, Iowa. Honestly, it was the sign of two key things that have since changed: the non-modern QB and offensive focus, and that Bill Davis was incompetent. It sucked because that team really had some interesting opportunities, but it doesn't haunt me like a certain Michigan State loss does. And from the 937, oh wait, I'm sorry, that's actually on a different, that's actually on a different topic. I don't know if we're going to get it to today. Someone who just really doesn't like Kirk Ferentz. From the 216, the 2017 loss remains completely baffling. OSU was top five SP plus in both offense and defense with a senior QB, far more overall talent, and didn't show anywhere near that level of weakness either before or after the game. Losing to Iowa and Kinnick, sure. Being down 14 and a half and losing by 31, inexplicable. That's Joseph in Atlanta. From the 5-1-3, um, this is someone who was at the 2017 game in Iowa and threatened a friend who was with him that uh, they weren't allowed to come anymore because uh, they weren't allowed to come to any more Ohio State games. Um, but he said it's changed because – or. His perspective has changed because it was three years ago and JT was a running back, JT Barrett, the quarterback. We shouldn't have that issue going forward. Hold on one second. And also from the 937, the Iowa loss in 2017 was very unsettling at the time and exposed all the problems that the Buckeyes had at that time. In hindsight, that was one of the best things to happen. It exposed the coaching deficiencies and ultimately got the program where it is today. Sure, the 31-0 blowout from Clemson raised concern, but that Clemson team was all time. But Iowa hanging 55 on them forced them to make changes. Now, someone could push back and say, did you see that Purdue game in 2018? Like, and maybe as in that yeah. maybe not didn't get changed, but do you feel there's some truth to that, that that was one of the first sort of sparks towards the, what we see from Ohio state football in the spring falls or spring summer of 2020 going into the season. I think that Clemson loss said that the 2016 loss said your quarterback is not good enough to win a national championship anymore, playing that style of quarterback. I think the Iowa loss basically just confirmed that and, you know, puts punctuation on it. And also why, you know, obviously I wasn't here in 2017, but from what I've, from what I've learned in the two months I got to see Dwayne Haskins play at Ohio State, it was – there were some questions of whether or not Dwayne Haskins should have been the starter in 2017 as well, just because of the vertical passing threat that he was in comparison to JT Barrett. And I'm going to use an example from that game. I think it was the third quarter. Terry McLaurin, he beats his guy at the line of scrimmage and he's going, he's wide open down the field. And if that, if you throw the bet, you throw a better pass, it's probably a touchdown given Terry McLaurin's speed and you know, just how things seem, seem, seem to work out. JT Barrett underthrew him so badly that not only was it not a catch, it was not only did it was not a touchdown, it wasn't a catch. I think Dwayne Haskins probably would have been able to make that throw. Justin Fields could clearly make that throw because we've seen Justin Fields make throws where he's overthrowing guys, which I think is probably better than underthrowing because in those situations, you at least give your wide receiver a chance to run under it and go get it. So I think it started that journey of, you know, we're never going to see that style of quarterback again. We're going to see the Dwayne Haskins of the world. We're going to see the Justin Fields of the world. And C.J. Stroud, Jack Miller, and Kyle McCord are proof of that. And as I said earlier, I think that showed, you know, the type of Sam linebacker you need where it's, you know, the Sam linebacker has to be able to do some of the things that a safety can do. And that means he has to be able to cover while also doing the, the duties of a, of a normal linebacker, which is why you saw with Pete Warner in 2019 – be able to do what he was he did against Penn State against Florida Atlantic and going forward you're seeing that in, re, in Ryan Day's recruiting of that position so 
I don't know if every single problem got fixed in 2018, obviously, because Purdue, they went to Purdue and Purdue exposed some things as well. But I do think the Iowa loss and the Purdue loss exposed some things that you're now seeing show up in the way Ohio State recruits and the way Ohio State schemes is defense. So having a passing quarterback like Dwayne Haskins, um, for instance, Dwayne Haskins, who they had in 2018, didn't prevent, again, that Purdue loss from happening. I would, I would, and, and also, I understand what, what, what you and other people are saying as far as like the, this mindset towards the modern quarterback or the, or the passing quarterback. But if, if Justin Fields doesn't kind of fall out of nowhere into their laps, um, it may have been a much more kind of traditional looking quarterback that they would have had for 2019, right? Or, or more the Urban Meyer mold of quarterback. And we still would have been kind of looking to the future towards the next kind of quarterback that Ryan Day was still trying to bring in. So I almost think that the bigger shift that from games like that was on defense. And I don't know if it, some of it was schematic. Some of it was, you know, um, Urban Meyer made some changes. Ryan Day made some more changes as far as the coaching staff. They brought in a new group of guys to lead this defense and they made some schematic changes, but also you just, the progression from, some of those guys in 2017 and 2018 were just a lot older, a lot better, a lot more refined and able to be what the 2019 defense was. I think we give, and this is probably going on a tangent about something that we don't need to go on a tangent about, but just, I think, I don't know if we still seen an urban mile level quarterback in 2019 if Justin Fields wouldn't have fell out the sky. Now, would Ohio State have been in a position to possibly win a national championship? No, but I think Matthew Baldwin might have won that job over Tate Martell, just given where Ohio State's offense was headed. I don't know if they're going to go back. I don't know if you go from a guy who can give you 55 touchdown passes and go backwards back to the guy where if he throws 35 touchdown passes, that's a, a pretty good season. I don't know if that's the case. So I still think that the offensive side of the ball probably evolved more than the defensive side, especially when you look at you know what an abysmal season of defense it was in 2018. And when you look at that, that wasn't the problem. The offense wasn't the problem against the Purdue. Against Purdue, it was the defense. While in 2017, the offense was the problem against Iowa. So one more thought from the 415 before we wrap up. Uh, Kirk Ferentz teams always, almost always play Ohio State tough. And if the Big Ten wants to create more compelling cross-divisional matchups, it might think about having the Buckeyes and Hawkeyes play more often. They've only played four times since 2009. And Iowa was very competitive in all four games. They kind of gave a rundown here. 27-24 in OT and 09. Iowa was uh, erased a 14-point deficit in fourth to force OT. 2010 at Kinnick, 2017 uh, 20-17 win for Ohio State, uh, winning touchdown with 147 to play. 2013 in Columbus, 34-24 Ohio State, tied at 24 going into the fourth. And then obviously the 2017 debacle, his words, not mine, in Kinnick in uh, 2017. So all four of those Ohio State teams were really good. Two of them were outright Big Ten champs. The 2010 and 2013 teams both won 12 games. Ferentz's Iowa teams are undaunted and almost always up for playing OSU. So that's why it, I, it, I think this is an interesting game on this schedule for Ohio State. I think it's a game that they should win this year in 2020. It's at home. Um, I think they're going to be coming off a bye. I can't remember. I should know this. Off, I should have already looked this up. I don't think Iowa is coming off a bye. Like I said, this is a schedule that doesn't really do Iowa a lot of favors um, in 2020. But they, they do not. They have a home game against Michigan State, and then they are at Iowa, uh, Ohio State. So, but it's always a team that I think is going to give them some trouble. And as if people listen to the, the segment with Chad, Chad Lysico, there's some offensive talent coming here um, with this, this quarterback 
with uh, the receiving core that they're bringing in. They always have a pretty tough offensive line. I think it could be a game. I think it could be an interesting game. I don't know if it's a team that can knock off Ohio State. It's been since, I think, 1991 that Iowa's come into Ohio Stadium and won. But is it, is it a team – when you're looking across the Big Ten, where do you rank Iowa as kind of just like an, an annual potential challenger for a team like Ohio State? It shouldn't be. I don't think it's on that high on that list just because, especially in 2020, this is a home game off of a bye week. This shouldn't be a problem at all for Ohio State. It's really off of two bye weeks. They're playing Buffalo and Rutgers the two weeks before the bye week. I think when Iowa is in a, a position where it was in 2017, where you've got two NFL level tight ends, which is what they do, they do NFL level tight ends, but also Ohio State doesn't, is is not competent in some places that it probably should be meaning on its defense and in the quarter at the quarterback situation and sure it's high on that list but I don't think going forward with the quarterbacks Ohio State is recruiting and you know how they're how they're just recruiting in general and the, the difference in scheme and how you know there's a guy on the field now whose entire job is when they are in man he's covering a tight end and he's not just you know decent he's pretty good at it I don't think Iowa should be high on that list of especially Big Ten West teams that should be a threat to Ohio State. Well, we'll find out on October 10th, that game um, scheduled at Ohio Stadium, uh, obviously time TBA. We will resume this next week because after playing Iowa at home, Ohio State then hits a tough back-to-back stretch uh, on the road. Uh, The Michigan State game, uh, probably not considered as tough as the one that comes up right after that, uh, the Penn State game. But Next week, we will delve into now the Michigan State rivalry takes on a new angle with Mel Tucker, a former uh, Cleveland Browns coach, former Ohio State assistant coming back into the Big Ten as a head coach uh, from Colorado, taking over the Spartans. And I think that's going to be an interesting battle going forward. I don't know if, if the Spartans are ready to come into Ohio Stadium this year or even at home and, and, and knock off the Buckeyes, but potentially one potentially a rivalry to keep an eye on going forward. So we will be back to talk about that next week, along with a lot of other things. And, uh, Come back with us tomorrow. We will be cranking out the the daily Buckeye talks. Stephen, how do you think the week's going so far? I like it. You know, I, I think we've disagreed on some things. We've agreed on some things. Like I said at the beginning of the week when I predicted it, everything has been at a quality volume. You don't have to mess with your volume editor time after time. Um, I think we're doing pretty well. You know, we miss Doug, obviously. We miss his presence. But I think we're doing pretty solid. I feel like this is our chance to come together as a, a, a dynamic duo, a force to be reckoned with. And then when Doug, we try, we mix Doug back into things that are, we'll, we'll have power in numbers and we can, we can stand up to the voluminous force that is Doug Lamery's. I think at some point this week, we should have a yelling podcast to practice it and get better so we can out yell him at some point in this season, especially during when the season starts and we're doing those post game pods. I think if we had one solid yelling pod, we would put ourselves in a position and we'd be prepared in a way that Ohio State was not prepared when they played Iowa in 2017. People, I'm going to go really off on a tangent here. People, uh, <laughs> you can find this on YouTube. There was this, I think it's on YouTube. It's on the internet somewhere. Dana Car- There was a thing of the Dana Carvey show that was on in the 90s on, I think, ABC. And uh, Stephen Colbert was one of the people on the show. There's some really funny sketches on there. But one of them was called like, like Germans saying nice things. And it was just these two guys standing next to you. There was like Dana Carvey and Stephen Colbert. And it was just them saying nice things, but they would just scream them in these German accents. So I feel like, you know, that could be like, we should just do a podcast where it's just everything we say, even if it's not something we're passionate about, 
we'll yeah. just yell it at the top <laughs> of our lungs. Um, we'll, we'll like have our microphone set up on the other side of the room. Um, just go full volume at it, and then we'll have the weekend for our voices to recover, and and we'll come back for for market down Monday. So, no, oh, and speaking no. of that, um, on Thursday, you guys are going to get a market down Monday question that is going to ask you a question you you probably don't want to answer, but we're going to ask it answered anyway. And um, and and if you're honest with us, I think we can have a, a really fun discussion with it. So uh, we already had our half of the discussion. Doug will be on that part of the discussion, um, but I'll send that out on Thursday because we'll record it Friday and have it ready for you guys first thing Monday morning. So uh, thanks again for joining us, and we'll be back Thursday with another daily pod. That was Buckeye Talk. <laughs> <laughs>